Hey, everybody, we are here to tell you about a cool new feature on the website that we would love for you to check out. Head to howtosplitatoaster.com and check out the bottom of the page. You'll find a box floating there that says, quote, ask Seth and Pete, close quote. This box is magical. You just type a question in there and the robots behind the scenes will search the actual audio of our entire library of past episodes and not only give you a short answer to your question, but point you to the specific episodes where we discussed your topic so you can listen yourself. At this point, we're just testing it. To know if this feature should be a permanent feature on the website, we need your help. For that, we need you to ask a lot of questions. So head to howtosplitatoaster.com and click the box, Ask Seth and Pete. The robots will do the rest. On with the show. Welcome to How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships from True Story FM. Today, it's time for your toaster to heal the fuck up. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Seth Nelson. As always, I'm here with my good friend, Pete Wright. Today, we're talking about the big narcissist reset. Dr. Justine Weber is a California licensed psychologist, and she specializes in helping women heal and recover from narcissistic abuse. She is certified in the Tina Swithin's High Conflict Divorce Coaching and helps them navigate high-conflict divorces in dealing with the legal battles. Fresh on the shelves is Dr. Weber's new book, How the Fuck Do I Heal From This? Understanding Narcissistic Abuse and How to Put Your Life Back Together. And she's here to give us a tour of her healing process today. Justine, welcome to the toaster. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, Justine, number one, we got to talk about the title of your book. I love it so much. You work blue, apparently, in your practice. Is that what I'm saying? (laughs) Is that what I'm hearing? How the fuck do I heal from this? Understanding narcissistic abuse and how to put your life back together. Um, uh, uh, Love love the title. Who Who came up with it? And what did it take to make sure that it actually stuck on the cover of the book as the official title? Yes. So that's a really good question. And I really am glad that you uh, like the title. I've kind of had this um, people basically in two categories. They either love it and really resonate or they're like, oh, you can't do that. That will not sell. Like people will not even have that you know, in their house and everything. So those are the people that need the book the most. They need the book the most. Exactly. And I do. I know, you know, for one, fuck is a fun word to say. Let's just put it out there. Deeply satisfying. And, this is going to be a yeah. great fucking yeah. podcast. Oh God. <laughs> it's just a fun word to say. And, um, you know, when people come to me and hire me to help them heal from this, they're really at this place where they're just like at a loss. They're angry. A lot of them, I always in the consultation, I always ask them, when did you realize this was narcissism? And I get answers from five days ago to a week ago to three months ago to I've always known. But they're just at this place where they're like, really? That's what this is. Like all of this suffering and pain that I've been dealing with my entire life for 20 years, for 15 years, that's what this is. You know, it's almost like they kind of want a therapist to say, no, this is cancer or, you know, something like that. It's like, that's all this is because then it's like, oh, but they don't change. So then that's kind of where the anger comes in because it's like, wait, 
I've invested all of these years. I've invested everything into this relationship. And you're telling me that he can't change and that this will never change. What the fuck do I do now? So they're just kind of at this stage, like really. So I kind of wanted to put the word, um, what the fuck actually. So initially it was understanding um, narcissistic abuse. What the fuck? But anyways, <laughs> my, um, my team was like, no, that's kind of weird. And so they came up with this and I was like, you know what? Yeah. I like it. No, I it's like good. It. It's good. So what I find so interesting about this conversation is that there are support groups for kids whose parents are, um, suffer from alcoholism. There are support groups for people who have a loved one who's going through cancer. Right. And I just find it fascinating with your book is like, this is all about you were with a narcissist, but you were the one being abused. So how do I recover from the decisions that I made that put me in this situation that I now have to kind of like get through on my own and I can no longer quote unquote blame the narcissist who was sitting next to me or across the table or in my bed or whatever, you know, analogy you want to use there. But it's not like you're saying, I have cancer. How do I get through cancer? Right. It's a little bit one step removed, but it was so impactful on how that person dealt with you and how it just changed your your life. So I am really looking forward to this conversation. I, I think, Seth, I think you're right on it, because I think for, for me, when we, in the conversations we've had about narcissism, everything we're describing is like the person who's the narcissist is the emotional garbage disposal, right? Like they just take everything you feel and they grind it all up and then do nothing with it. It's just flushed away, right? That never nothing ever comes back to help you heal. And this is the, the thing, like once you experience it, once you are in the space of it and even say you figure out like this is how I want to... This is how I, I I know I have to live my life free of this person, of this relationship. How do you reclaim agency in your life to to be a, a determinant part of your future, right? How do you put your path, uh, like open up your path ahead and figure out, like, I, I can make choices now. I can make choices that are, that don't have to respect this other poisonous part of my life. All right, Justine, answer it all in like 33 minutes. Yeah, we're going to need you. That's right. You got We got a tight 20. <laughs> Second step is that. And then third mm -hmm. step, run. Is profit. <laughs> I will make this ever again. The thing I notice, um, Seth, with people, with almost everybody that I work with, and this is such a big piece of the treatment, is there's actually self-blame. That's what it is. It's self-blame. They've, they're, I mean, these people are suffering because they've been drowning for, you know, potentially years of feeling like everything is their fault. This is me because the narcissist was so savvy and so good at um, convincing, manipulating, controlling, um, creating those thoughts in the victim. And so a big piece of the treatment is really to detach from that, to forgive yourself and through radical acceptance, the reality is, look, I don't like what's in front of me. I didn't believe that I married this person. I thought he was someone else. And for the record, too, just to be PC, I'm referring to a narcissist as he, and I did this in my book. I'm very clear that 
lots of women are narcissists. I did this for simplicity purposes. I didn't want to do like the he, she thing, but also just personally, 90% of the people I work with and have ever worked with are women. I do have clients that are men as well. So I don't want to act like it's- yep, No, we're good. <laughs> Appreciate the clarification. She's referring to me, B. Right, right. She right. says the narcissist- the present, present company, absolutely accepted. I'll just, yeah. I'll All just right. for simplicity, I'll just say you too, basically. Yeah, okay, that'd be right. good. Pete and Seth. So Seth the narcissist, and then <laughs> Pete needs the healing. Got it. The grandiose okay. narcissist. But this is a huge piece of it. It's just this, you know, that's why when people come to me, they're just, they're overwhelmed. They've got complex PTSD. They're, they're angry. They're, you know, um, at a loss. They're feeling hopeless. And Justine, this isn't unique to people who have been abused by narcissists. So a lot of times, if you are the person who was the mark and you got fooled, you feel bad about it. I did something wrong. And here's a little example. My father just passed away not too long ago, but about a year ago, and he was almost 83. He sent like $250 to an email scam thing. And he just beat himself up about it. it. He was like, oh my God, I can't believe I got fooled. Like I should know better. And and I was like, dad, it's okay. Like, first off, it was 250 bucks, not 250,000. Yeah, right. right. But, yeah. but, but it, but I just saw him take all this blame. And I'm like, dad, there's a reason why my brother and I watch your emails and watch your account. So you don't get taken advantage of like, and that's where you are in your life, but we're here for you. We got you. Like, don't worry about it. You didn't do anything wrong. You, and, and it went right to his heartstrings. He thought he was helping his sister. Like, so yeah, it, it, it's very innocent. But so this isn't just, I know we're going to talk about healing from narcissism, but is it fair to say this is very common when you get had or something happened, you blame yourself? Absolutely. When you feel like you've been betrayed or lied to or screwed. The reason why we tend to, and you know, it's everybody, why we blame ourselves is, is because that's where we feel like we have more control. You know, feeling like you don't have any control over a situation and you cannot escape it, it is the worst experience and feeling in the world. So if we blame ourselves, we can't control that scammer who did that. We can't control our father and how he raised us. We can't control our ex and what he did to us. But we can control this narrative that we create in our brains to make sense of it. Because the brain is, it's like easier for us to gravitate toward, oh, this is my fault. I should have known. So that's what I hear all the time too. I should have known. I saw all the red flags. I should have known. I saw this. I stayed. I'm such an idiot. I'm so stupid. You've been screwed by someone or betrayed. I should have known. I'm such an idiot. Why did I do that? It's kind of almost a little bit easier for the brain to make sense of that, but that's actually not helpful. That's the thing. So when there's been trauma, the best thing that we can do through like being, you know, like lied to or betrayed is to give ourselves um, compassion. Compassion is the piece where you can implement and almost replace this negative internal narrative. I'm such an idiot. I should have known. I'm so stupid. I yeah, can't you got to forgive yourself, right? Give yourself a pass. 
forgive yourself and really just this radical acceptance, but be kind to yourself. You know, like how would you, you know, if your friend was like, Hey, I got screwed. I, I thought this person was real and I gave them $50,000. Like, would you be like, Oh my God, you're such an idiot. What's wrong with you? That's what Pete told me the other day. 50 grand. Maybe I'd have words. (laughs) (laughs) Pete goes, I can't believe you didn't get taken for a hundred. Yeah. Wait, wait a second, I, because I think this is really this, this is actually really interesting. Seth's uh, uh, jokes aside, uh, the the fact that uh, rejection sensitivity, right? Like being hypersensitive to this feeling of betrayal, rejection, lie, dishonesty, is that more prevalent in someone who has been sort of conditioned in a narcissistically abusive relationship? Is that is that a, is that something that is like a learned behavior? I think it absolutely can. Like to have more experiences like this later in life, is that what you're asking? Yeah. It it kind of everything kind of goes back to, you know, childhood, unfortunately. You know, I don't mean to blame It's <laughs> always mother. it's always Seth's childhood. You know, it's always the mother. Well, I Both I always, my parents have passed now, I blame them for all sorts of shit. Everything. They can't <laughs> fight back. Right. Plausible deniability. <laughs> Let's just be frank about it. I I I just, and it's not even about blaming, it's about understanding. It's about getting a full template of like why you behave in this way, why you connect with these people in that way. And it's not negative as well. Everyone thinks it's a blame, but it's not. No. I totally understand my wife more after I got to know her parents better. There can be positives, there can be negatives, there could be strengths, there could be weaknesses, whatever you want to say. But yeah. I mean, it's about, you know, um, forgiving yourself and being able to, you're more able to um, offer yourself that um, self-compassion and kindness and replace it with the negative self-talk if there is a basis of understanding, because then you have a template of why you think the way that you do or why you interpret things, you know, in that way. And so it kind of gives you a different um, framework of like, oh, okay, so you know, I trust too easily, or maybe you, you know, what's, what's very common with um, children who have been raised with a narcissistic parent is they tend to be a people pleaser. So the trauma responses are fight, freeze, flee. And the fourth one is fawn. So fawning is this trauma response when, you know, maybe you're about to get eaten by, you know, a tiger or something, and you just kind of give up. And you try to appease and please the abuser. So this is a very common reaction. And it's really a coping mechanism because it's not an option to sit there and confront your like narcissistic dad who's super aggressive and angry and blames you and, you know, or possibly um, violent. You kind of have to be like, okay, I'm sorry. It was me. I'll work on that. You're trying to appease and please the abuser. How do you break through all that after it's over? And that takes a lot of work. <laughs> I'd love to be like, just book two sessions with me and you're good to go. I think this is where, you know, having um, that framework of like the why and understanding like, you know, so in the treatment with all my clients, we kind of go back to like their parents and what was it like in the upbringing? What attachment style did you develop? Did it feel safe in your childhood? Uh, What were you afraid of? Um, Who did you connect with? Did you ever feel safe? And so when we unpack that, you know, this is how we're better able to 
replace a lot of the negative internal critic talk with self-compassion, being kind to ourself, self-forgiveness, but then also noticing abusive and bad behavior and calling it out because children who are raised in environments like this, they don't know. How, how could you know? I mean, there's a piece where it's familiar. If that's all you know, it's comfortable. And so this is the template that gets ingrained and is almost like this lens in which you use in life to connect to, you know, I mean, when I met, you know, it stems back to my mother, you know, and, um, but when I met my, you know, ex-husband, it was like, I'm like, this is great. It's perfect. I'm used to this. I'm just going to adapt. I'm going to be a people pleaser. I'm going to do everything. I'm going to say, sure, no problem. I'm not going to have any needs. I'm not going to have any boundaries because I don't need them. And I'm going to be like manipulated and controlled and everything's going to be great. You know, it was like, that's what I was used to. You know, they don't really put that on the Hallmark card when you get married. (laughs) I was just buying cards for a young wedding you know, what young couple. And I didn't see that in the Hallmark card section. <laughs> Why not? Congratulations on your marriage. You're about to be nam- manipulated, controlled, no <laughs> right, worth, right. no boundaries. <laughs> right. Congratulations. Roll over. It's going to be great. Well, it's funny you say that actually, because um, the I have a little bit of creative side, but actually I think it's in my second chapter. It starts off the wedding day. And so it starts off like, you know, you've met the man of your dreams and, you know, he's a 10 and like successful, good looking, intelligent, savvy, you know, all this stuff. And so the wedding officiant is like, dear, are you sure you want to marry this person? Soon after you say I do, your entire life is going to be sucked out of you. You are going to put all of your needs aside and he's basically going to destroy your life. Are you sure you want to marry this person? And, I'm in because you know. we got a great buffet and the <laughs> DJ is awesome. What's going to get me to the tiramisu fastest? Yeah. <laughs> Just send me to the cocktail table. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I so I, man, I've got this. Uh, I, I want to build a framework for those who are listening to this. And my my, I, I think my biggest question is: Is it possible for you to wake up on your own? Right? Is this like is everything we're describing seems so cemented from so long ago that it almost feels like it requires some sort of an intervention? Is that fair? I would say the majority of the time, yes. So I notice that when women do kind of wake up is usually when they've left. So when they left and they're away from the person and maybe there's this no contact, that's when they're able to kind of grasp a different framework. But when you're in the relationship and this is what you're used to, and this is your what's comfortable and familiar and all of that, even though you're experiencing so much pain and your body's telling you, no, this is not good, this is not safe, this is abusive. At some point, I think it things just become so bad. You know, that's what happened to me. I reached this point re- and I didn't realize actually until, I mean, even me, I mean, and so that's why I say, you know, I have a lot of compassion for people because if anybody should have known, I should have known. Yeah, right. Well, <laughs> that's know? cognitive dissonance too, right? Because what you're describing is it's comfortable because of the framework, the worldview, but also very painful because of the day-to-day sort of uh, abuses and, and slights against you. It's so 
hard to see it when you're in it. The thing that can help is um, because I do work with women who are still in the relationship and a lot like some of them are just I get it. You know, Justine, I realize this is really bad and it's probably going to kill me, but I just can't leave for whatever reason, financial, citizenship, fear children, a whole list. I get it. And so there's different kind of tools and strategies you can put in place to kind of um, coast through it. But when you're in it, if you're seeing a therapist, if you have friends that have a healthy mindset that you can trust, where when you talk to them, they're like, wow, I get it. I'm so sorry. This is really screwed up just to verify that because you need somebody to verify how fucked up and dysfunctional this is. Because if all you're hearing and feeling and seeing is in the house and he's drilling in you how it's you, you're the problem and you want, you don't want to believe how fucked up this is. And so the cognitive, <laughs> the cognitive dissonance surfaces and it's like, well, you know, he's had a really rough day or he had a bad childhood or, you know, he's an addict. We make excuses and justify and minimize to make sense of what's in front of us. But this just hurts us in the long term. Well, I, I think it's fascinating. And I know some of the work that you do is in helping people navigate high conflict divorces. Seth, how does this how does this play out in divorce? Take everything Justine says and then add me into the equation. So I'm representing wife in this hypothetical, right? Okay. Husband's the narcissist. First off, he's not allowed to know what I talk to my client about. Now, she might tell him, but when he is no longer getting the responses from her that have worked for so many years, he's going to start ratcheting it up, pulling different levers. Yep. And here are common things that I hear my clients who are being abused by a narcissist, say to me, one, my husband says that you're only in it for the money. You don't care about the kids or her. You're just billing, billing, billing. Because that's a common attack. Okay? You don't have to listen to him. You get to make your own decision. I actually agree with that. My client doesn't have to listen to me and she can make her own decision. But the way he's saying that is basically saying, don't listen to him. Do what I say. Okay, then there will be we're waiting on your lawyer. We're always waiting on him. He's the one slowing the process down. Not my lawyer, not me, him. Like I'm the problem. So here are some tools that I use with my clients to show them to combat those type of conversations. When it says that I'm the problem, that I'm slowing it down, every email I send to opposing counsel, I CC myself and I send it to my client. Here's the update. We just sent over a revised parenting plan and marital settlement agreement for your review. I, I say to the opposing side, here's the updated one my client has approved. Please get with your client. Let me know your thoughts. I immediately send that to my client. So when the narcissist says, we're waiting on your, on your lawyer, Seth is dragging his feet. She can say, he sent the email three weeks ago. Right. And he did a follow-up every single Tuesday. And I encourage them to ship it right over. If they, They're allowed to talk to their spouse. I can't talk to them directly. But if they want to share that email, boom, send it over. Because it undercuts their mantra of, 
I'm the problem, the lawyer's the problem, the lawyer's the problem, the lawyer's the problem. And the natural sense of gaslighting, how easy it is to take control of the narrative through false, uh, falsity, right? Right. And so the narcissist is going to blame anybody around who is accessible where, you know, he can gain more control and, you know, to get basically what he wants. And, you know, a way that I help, you're, you're absolutely right, Seth, like a way that I work with my clients to help build and foster that reality in themselves because they've lost that with the gaslighting. I mean, their sense of like what is true, what's not true, it's just been squashed. But a way that you can rebuild that is to write things down. So I always say, what did your eyes show you? What did your ears tell you? Write it down. So your ex is telling you this, but I wrote this down and I saw this. That's your proof. That's your proof. And you can continue to rebuild from that. And then, you know, kind of eventually, hopefully with time, you know, what he's telling the victim eventually begins to have less intensity. And it's like the voice becomes softer. It's like, yeah, this is what he's saying, but but it takes time to build that. And a question that I ask my clients frequently is, do you care what he says? Do you care? Loaded question, right? If you're conditioned in a narcissistic, abusive relationship, you probably care a lot, but you don't know why. Exactly. Exactly. You got you hit it right out of the park, Pete. Because they'll say all these things that are bad. The, the, the husband to the wife, my client, will tell the wife, you're no good, you're good for nothing, you can never get a job. And, you know, and turning around and saying to court, like, she could get a million dollar job, I don't want to pay alimony, right? They talk out of both sides of their mouth, right? And I said, how many times has your husband said bad things about me that you've reported to me? And she says, like, every week when I talk to you, I said, do you think that negatively impacts me in any way? She goes, no. I said, why not? She's like, you don't care. Exactly. I don't care what he says about me. But rewiring seems to take a, like, I, it, that, that's got to, like, you talked about it already, Justine. It's like, that takes work. <laughs> like, how do you, where yeah, do you start rewiring your brain to, to, like, not care about this, this person? What, what you're really doing is you're forming new pathways in the brain and detaching from old patterns. And this is, you know, through healing and growth is the more that you have experiences like that and the more questions you ask yourself, like, why do I care? Like, what am I getting from it? They're like, even if they don't have an answer, they probably don't think about it because it's probably something they've never thought about. Just as you said, every time you ask those questions that are insightful, that are ways to foster and regrow your reality and your truth, it carves out those pathways of the brain and it becomes a little bit easier and easier to practice and to get access to, you know, each time. So even if you don't know the answer, it's okay. And another thing on that, Justine, is kind of what you're saying of what do they say, write down what you saw. I tell my clients all the time, I don't care what he says to you. And I'm saying this very strongly for the example purposes. What I care is what his lawyer files in court. 
I'm going to take all your money. You're going to be homeless. You dumbass bitch. I can't believe you would ever think about leaving me. You're never going to find anybody. And all my client hears is you're going to be homeless and you're never going to see your kids. That's what he said. I said, that's not going to happen. Right. He didn't even file in court asking for the house. He didn't even file in court asking to have 100% timesharing or custody of the children, which doesn't exist in Florida. So when I tell you I don't care, I'm telling you from a legal perspective, yes, it's emotional. Yes, he's pushing your buttons. Yes, he's trying to control. Yes, we have to deal with all that. But one way of dealing with it is not to. Yeah. Now, they hate that. The narcissist hates that. You're so right because it's like, when you don't respond, you know, I always say like not reacting or responding to a narcissist is like cutting their oxygen off. It's like they can't stand it because that's how they get the control when their they blood. freaking out and just losing your mind. But all of these clients, and that's a big piece of my work and your work, it sounds like, is really trying to regulate their nervous system, trying to, you know, grow their you know, and foster their executive functioning skills because they're all in fight or flight. And so when you're in fight or flight, worst case scenario is going to happen. I'm going to die. I'm going to be on the street. I'm going to be homeless. All of the worst case scenario, which never happens, but it feels very real and it feels very present and likely. And so when you kind of sit down calmly, and that's why writing is a really helpful tool because you can kind of see clearly what the truth is, And then from there, assess what is the likelihood of this actually happening? Like on a scale from zero to 10, like what's the likelihood of it? Right. All right. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. Seth, according to the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, about 10% of children live with a parent with an alcohol use disorder. It's just tragic. Pete, we hear this statistic all the time. At the end of the day, the courts don't care about the statistic. The courts care about keeping kids safe. And when I mean safe, I mean safe from a party who truly suffers from an alcohol disorder or is being wrongly accused of having alcoholism or some other alcohol disorder. It's easy and it saves you money. Instead of he said, she said, there's Soberlink. Soberlink is fantastic, and they are a fantastic partner to this show. So what is Soberlink? Soberlink is a device. It's like a breathalyzer, but it is more. You blow into Soberlink whenever you want to prove in real time that you are safe to be with your kids at carpool, at drop-off, at handoff. Whenever you're going to be driving, you blow into Soberlink. It uses facial recognition to prove that you are the one blowing at the time that you are taking the reading. It sends it off to the people who need to know. People involved directly in your case, not to be used for publication, not to be used for social media. This just goes to the people who matter most for your case as you are collecting data. Soberlink Remote Alcohol Monitoring has helped over 500,000 people prove their sobriety and provide peace of mind during parenting time. And Seth, word on the street is courts love it. Yeah. And it's not just when you're getting in a car. Let's be clear. People can say, never gotten a DUI. What's the issue? Well, the issue is once you're home at five o'clock and you're no longer driving, but you're going to start cooking and having a glass of wine and that glass of wine turns into two bottles. That's now an issue. So it's not just getting in the car. It's when you, the children are in your care, custody and control, are you focused on them and not using alcohol? 
independent third-party real-time verification to support your case. I haven't been drinking. Here's the proof. Those are the words that lawyers and courts love, but here are the words you're going to love. You can save 50 bucks off your device and get started right away at Soberlink.com slash toaster. That's Soberlink.com slash toaster. Thank you to Soberlink for sponsoring this show. Is it fair to say that all divorces in this circumstance, divorcing a narcissist, all divorces in this circumstance are a high-conflict divorce? All of them? I would say no. Like, is it possible possible to peacefully divorce a narcissist? I'm going to say no to that. The only time I've ever really seen it is when the narcissist has moved on to another victim. Okay. Right? Where... They're beating their head against the wall. They're trying to run my client through the ringer. We're fighting for our client. We're doing everything ethically, honestly, professionally. And you go to court and they start losing. Mm -hmm. And they'll never say it because they'll blame the judge. Mm -hmm. They'll blame me. They'll blame their lawyer and fire that lawyer and get a new lawyer. It's always somebody else's fault. But at some point, they're not getting the responses, Pete that they expect in their narcissist's brain and they're going to go get it. They're going to go get that drug somewhere else and then they move on to a new victim is how I view it. I do agree with you. Um, I hate using the words like every case, you know, always um, have I ever... Pete's very, you know, right or wrong, left or right. Right. <laughs> One, zero. Mm-hmm. I mean, have have I ever seen a peaceful uh, divorce? I would have to say no. Um, but I think also my measuring stick of high conflict is a little skewed because I've seen just really just nasty, nasty cases. So I think my um, the way that I measure it is probably a little jaded. However, what I will say is to your point, Seth, what I've noticed is what can reduce the high con- uh, the or the intensity of the high conflict is sometimes when you strategically almost give the narcissist what they're wanting so they feel like they're winning and like they're in control um sometimes that can help alleviate um the intensity of the high conflict or the um duration of it I mean, if this is something that's maybe been going on for two years. So some examples of that would be kind of like money. Sometimes money is, <laughs> you know, if, you know, a woman's like, you know what, this isn't worth it. I, I I just need to get my life back. This is, you know, destroying me. I need to put an end to this. If she has the, you know, capacity and the means to basically start over from nothing. In some cases, I would say, do it, do it. Oh, we have that discussion all the time with the narcissist or not. Like there is a emotional toll of going through a divorce trial. Yeah. And I I compare it to a surgery. We're going to cut you open. It's going to be ugly and there's going to be scars. So let's try to limit that. Right. So if we can get a deal, I tell a client, I can do better for you in court, but I like going to court. You don't. Right. I'm not the one suffering <laughs> right. physically at nighttime. Right. Not sleeping. You know, the night before your before your trial, I'm telling you, I am woefully 
overprepared. I'm ready. I'm probably going to kick back and have a glass of wine the night before trial. You're not going to be doing that, right? So there is certainly the point of take less to be done. There's also the financial cost. If you are arguing over money that is going to be eaten up by the cost of litigation, you should settle your case. Yeah. And you get all that emotional baggage done. A question about carrying through post-divorce because you brought up baggage. Let's talk about kids. Is that a bad segue? Maybe it's a bad segue. (laughs) I'm not calling all kids baggage, but some of them have a bit of a heavy load. No, that's a joke. Listen, some of them are carry on and some you just want to check them underneath. Okay. (laughs) For sure. Put a tag on them. (laughs) How, what's your experience watching through the context of rebuilding your life? after a a narcissistic relationship you get the divorce you still in some capacity largely have to deal with this person if you have kids of that age what does that relationship need to look like in order to maintain the healthy boundaries that you're trying to cultivate and still get something done and raise healthy kids oh that's such a tough question i think this is where you have to be really clear about what your boundaries are you know, what your needs are, ways to set those boundaries, flexibility, adaptability is a huge piece of it as well. Can we talk about that for a minute? That flexibility, adaptability, because people, in my experience, change what they're fighting for. And here's what I mean. You're dealing with the narcissist. And I tell my client, look, he's not going to change. So be flexible. You have a, let's call it a 50-50 timesharing, custody visitation, it's even. And he constantly is calling last minute and saying, I can't take the kids, you need to pick them up. I can't take the kids, you need to pick them up. Now, this is a guy that was going to go to trial over Mm 50-50, right? This happens all the time. And he's giving away what he was fighting for. And my client will call me and say, I'm always rearranging my schedule. I'm always doing this. And I said, Okay, I appreciate how that's freaking annoying and you feel like he's getting the upper hand. But what's more important to you? You have your kids. And that's what you told me you wanted. And if I would have told you, you're going to have your kids 75% of the time, 50%, you know when it's going to be. The other 25% is going to be last minute. Will you take them? You would be like, yeah, I'll drop anything I'm doing to have my kids. But there's this control factor that's happening. That's what they're mad about. And I say, let that go. He's giving them to you. That's what you wanted. So a lot of it is refocusing what is important to you. Now, I have other situations where they just, the kids stop going. Maybe they go every other weekend and now you have them 80% of the time. And then they call and tell me, I want more child support. I have them all the time. I said, remember my notes? Let me pull them out. The reality you told me, I'll take no child support if I can get my kids 80% of the time. Before we went to litigation, you have that now. Don't kick the bear. Be really clear about what problem you're trying to solve here. And through flexibility and adaptability, and this is where you kind of have to, you know, um, just change the way that you interpret things. You know, I mean, it can be very triggering when you've been controlled and like manipulated for 20 years or 15 years. 
and then, you know, he's making changes last minute, it can feel like, oh, of course, because I'm worthless, because my time is not like valuable and everything. But for women, if you're really wanting the majority of the time with your children, rather than fighting, because they all do this, they all fight for 50% out of nowhere. They've never done anything with these kids for probably 15, 20 years. But now after the divorce, it's like, oh, I'm dad of the year, you know, again, for their ego, I need to prove how I'm such a great dad and need to be around my kids. Which I think is hilarious. I think it's hilarious because they say, I need a piece of paper that says I'm 50-50 because look, I'm going to show I have 50-50. Then then you're going to hang out with your buddies and you're going to talk about how you got 50-50 and they're with you 75% of the time, your friends, and the kids aren't around. Or you say that (laughs) to the new girlfriend, like, yeah, I have 50-50 and then- She never meets them. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's very bizarre. And so this is where it's like, you know, or, or or my uh, favorite thing is a babysitter. So you have the kids for barely 50% of the time. And then when you have the kids, you have a babysitter 100% of the time. And so like, I see this a lot too. It's like, why have a babysitter if, if you can't watch the kids, just give them back to their mom. But it's like this, you know, control thing. No, they go tell their friends, I, I have them 50. I'm such a great dad. But this is where strategically... What I like to kind of guide my clients in is like, look, there's a saying like, you can't reason with somebody who's not reasonable. You can't uh, have logic with somebody who's not logical, but you can manipulate a manipulator. And so strategically be creative with how you phrase things. So like, for example, I had a client, you know, 50-50, she was really angry about it. She ended up letting it go because I was like, look, is this a battle you really want to fight for? chances are he's probably going to give you the the, um, kids, you know, the majority of the time anyway. So just let him feel like he's one. So, you know, if if you call your um, ex and just give them what they want to hear, you know, the kids love being with you. And, you know, they always get so excited when they go see dad. I also do know that you work so hard. You're so successful at your job and it's very demanding. So whenever you have visitation of the kids, you need a break too, because you work so hard and you're so successful, the kids. And I really appreciate, you know, the money you give us whenever you need a break, or if you just like need to work or you're on a business trip, I will take care of the kids. No questions asked. I will go pick them up at any time. And it's not a problem because you need a break too, even though the kids are really sad when they don't see their dad. So like that strategy actually eventually, cause she kind of was, she said this a number of times to him in a different way. And eventually it kind of did work. Like she absolutely has the kids 70% of the time. Whenever he goes on a business trip, a party trip, whatever, it doesn't matter. Like he's just like, hey, can you have the kids like this weekend? And she's more than happy to do it because she has the kids the majority of the time. So it saved all of this time and money in court. Just tell him what he wants to hear. He wants to believe that he's dad of the year, that the kids want to be around him. He wants to believe that he has this image of being so successful and basically his time is more valuable. So tell him that. She's the one who's actually controlling the narrative of the dynamic. This is how women can get their power back. Man, it sounds good, but I cannot imagine one of my clients doing that during the divorce, maybe after. 
just because of the stress and the the stress, fear, and, and anxiety. And then, and if you're saying all that, how does that going to play out in the courtroom? Well, didn't you say the kids loved them? <laughs> you know, yeah. But I appreciate the strategy post divorce. You know, I'd just be nervous going to court on that stuff. I agree. And you would never write something like this down, you know, through a conversation or if anything, it might, you know, help alleviate some of the intensity during court. You know, if he feels like it's not like a battle, you're not fighting, but we're actually sort of on the same team, or at least he maybe <laughs> believes it. But I agree. It, it takes a lot of courage. I mean, I have women that are like two, three years out and this, this one woman, she, uh, was getting no financial support. Her ex lived in a foreign country. It, it, it was so complicated. I mean, it really was so complicated. So I was like, you know what? I spoke to an attorney and she was just in a really screwed up situation. So I was like, your best strategy is being so nice and complimentary toward him in hopes that he gives you something. It's not worth going to court because of how complicated the situation was. And so she tried that and it hasn't gotten worse put it that way. But it takes a lot of courage to suck it up and be like, how is your day? You are such a good dad. I mean, yeah, so strength to be, murder. Right, right. Well, want to strangle. <laughs> hopefully the answer to that and so many more questions are in the book. How the fuck do I heal from this? Understanding narcissistic abuse and how to put your life back together. Now, the book is brand new, right? Yes. Outstanding. All right. So this is uh, a very fresh. Pete, we're uh, ahead book. of the curve. I know. On pop this culture, I'm like five to 10 years behind. Like, I know, I feel I know like... but on divorce self help books, you're on the money. That's a weird flex, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> Justine, where do you want to send people to learn more about it? I have a website, drjustineweber.com. That's my coaching business website. And I'm on all of the social media platforms, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook. Seth's there too. He's going to, he's going to be sure, especially TikTok. He loves TikTok. <laughs> Old TikTok <laughs> Nelson, they call him. He's not on TikTok. That's, that's exactly what will be written on my gravestone. <laughs> <laughs> well, we sure appreciate this. Uh, we will put all the links to the show notes, uh, in the show notes to all of the places where you can go learn more uh, about your work and, and pick up the book. Uh, you're fantastic for coming and hanging out with us and teaching us a little bit more about how to navigate the uncertain waters, rocky, stormy, stormy seas of the narcissistically abusive relationship. I don't know. It was my metaphor. I think there are five metaphors in the last sentence. That was pretty good. I'm thinking, how the fuck do I figure out that metaphor? (laughs) (laughs) My uh, second book is going to be called, What If I Didn't Fucking Heal? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there's a maybe a much bigger market for that. (laughs) I'm three years out. I didn't fucking heal. My life's worse. (laughs) Oof. Well, we sure appreciate you being here to talk about book number one. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again, everybody, for downloading and listening to this show. We appreciate your time and your attention on behalf of Dr. Justine Weber and Seth Nelson, America's favorite divorce attorney. I'm Pete Wright, and we'll catch you back here next week on How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships. How to Split a Toaster is part of the True Story FM podcast network, produced by Andy Nelson, music by T-Bless and the Professionals, and DB Studios. Seth Nelson is an attorney with NLG Divorce and Family Law with offices in Tampa, Florida. While we may be discussing family law topics, How to Split a Toaster is not intended to, nor is it providing legal advice. Every situation is different. 
If you have specific questions regarding your situation, please seek your own legal counsel with an attorney licensed to practice law in your jurisdiction. Pete Wright is not an attorney or employee of NLG Divorce and Family Law. Seth Nelson is licensed to practice law in Florida.